This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. Rob Rosenthal here. I'm the host for How Sound. Happy New Year to you. I don't make New Year's resolutions, do you? I'm not against them. I, I think almost any time you stop for a moment to take stock of where you're at and plan for change is a good idea, right? But mostly, mostly I don't tend to do that in the form of a New Year's resolution. Except this year. I made a resolution this year. The resolution came to me after I recently listened to the radio documentary Hark, The Acoustic World of Elizabethan England. That's a long title, so I'll probably just call it Hark from here on if you don't mind. Hark perked up my ears in a way that a radio documentary hasn't in a long time. I found that it rejuvenated my sense of hearing and my connection to the sounds in my everyday life. The click of my computer keyboard, my daughter singing to herself at the other end of the house, passing cars, my my partner tending to the wood stove. Because of Hark, I'm paying more attention with my ears. Hark was produced in 2008 by an incredible team, Chris Brooks, Paolo Pietropalo, and Alan Hall. The piece won awards in the States and Europe, and rightfully so. Hark speculates about the soundscape in England 400 years ago. Hark also puts our modern soundscape under an audio microscope and asks some pretty tough questions about what we hear every day. And that's what prompted my New Year's resolution, to listen, listen deliberately. Once a day, or I don't know, a couple times a week, whatever I can manage, I want to sit down and just pay attention to the sounds around me, even if it's just for a minute or so. Just stop, slow down, and, and really focus on my ears. And I advise you to listen deliberately to Hark. In fact, because this is a lengthy piece that takes its time and is remarkably sound-rich, I suggest you stop, put on some headphones, or place yourself smack dab in the middle of your speakers, and focus with your ears. Here's Hark, the acoustic world of Elizabethan England. It was a different world then. It's all changed now. Recording. 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 Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Could I ask you to do me a favor with that telephone for about 30 seconds? Go on. I'm collecting the sounds all around London. So would you just hold the phone up in the air so I can record the sound at that payphone location? Okay. What exactly is the location? Uh, Leicester Square. All right, just hold it up in the air, would you? All right. Thank you. 30 seconds. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm Bruce Smith. I'm a professor of English at the University of Southern California. And I was reading somewhere that Every sound that had ever been made within the Earth's atmosphere still exists somewhere, however faint those frequencies are. And that if we just had the right kind of technical equipment, we could hear the voice of perhaps Shakespeare himself playing the ghost in Hamlet. Uh, And I asked myself then, are the sounds of the past gone forever? Good exercise. It's excellent exercise, absolutely. It's about, so we're just under 200 steps all the way to the top, so 
And we've done them all by the time we get out of it. All of us live in a distinctive soundscape, whether we pay attention to it consciously or not. You do these every day, I presume. Um, I don't, fortunately. We're part of a sound world. I think what's changed is our awareness of those sounds and our, our, our lack of acuity in being able to hear what is out there to hear for all of us. We're on the top of the tower at St Marylebone in London. The sort of things you can see from here are that the church there is St Michael's Cornhill. Is that place with the dome? It's no, it's, it's the tower just up left from the dome. Oh yes, that's uh, St Michael's Cornhill, and you've got some of the big places. When we look at something, we feel as if we're casting our gaze that it's starting with us and it's moving toward an object that's out there. You know, actually, in Shakespeare's time, there were still many people who thought that that's exactly what happened when you look, that light beams were actually sent out from your eyes and touched the object that you were looking at and then came back to your eyes. Um, and uh, off in the distance, you can see Canary Wharf right in the distance. I feel very much in control of what I see. That's that tent-like structure there that says Canary Wharf? It's right out in the distance. So behind the cranes there, you can see... Yes, yes, yes. Hearing works the other way around. When we listen to something, we're locating the source of the sound, not in ourselves, but in the object that's making the sound. So it's an exact reversal. Would you close your eyes and tell me each sound that you hear? Okay, I can hear a helicopter in the distance. Um, I think I can hear an air conditioning unit. Hear a bus. Um, Hearing is not linear. It's like a sphere. Certainly the brakes of a bus. An aeroplane somewhere in the distance. We are surrounded by sound. There's certainly lots of traffic. Sound is above us, below us, behind us, to our right, to our left. I can't hear any people or any birds or any bells. Sound is a totally enveloping experience. Yes, it's certainly, predominantly, it's the traffic noise and, and the aircraft that you hear. We're immersed in the sound. What do you imagine you would have heard four centuries ago? Okay. Um, I know you wouldn't have heard any aircraft for certain, um, or any vehicles, of course. Um, so I suspect from up here... Um, you would have heard horses, I suspect. Um, you might well have heard a lot more conversation. I suspect you would have heard a lot more birds. Um, so I think it would have sounded very, very different. Perhaps you'd have heard a lot more boats on the river. Uh, you know, there are boats on the river, um, but you don't hear very much of them from here. You can't actually see the river from here. Um, whereas then, I suspect, with the buildings being lower, you'd have actually seen the river and you'd have seen a lot more boat traffic and, and heard a lot of what was going on around the Port of London. don't hear people. Very much it's the internal combustion engine. I don't hear people. 
I don't hit people. I don't hit people. compacted earth. Now we go on to much lighter gravel. Recording. So this is a Foley Theatre and I'm Robin O'Donoghue, Head of Post-Production Sound for Pinewood and Shepherd and Studios in London. We have some heavier, heavier sort of beach type rock. bit of sand just next to it. And these surfaces, we have many, many surfaces. Um, I'm going to walk around just to give you a little idea. We have um, hard tarmac, which wasn't used in um, Shakespeare in Love. Recording. I say a play on both their houses. Where are you going? So over here we have hollow wooden boards, which... We would have used probably for the upstairs of um, Joe finds his house when he's when he's writing his play in Shakespeare in Love. Um, when he ran upstairs, this is the sort of stuff we would have used. Now, Will, I am a dead man and buggered to boot. My theatre is closed by the play these twelve weeks. My actors are forced to tour the inn yards of England, while Mr Burbage and the Chamberlain's men are invited to court. Recording. There's a scene where Joe finds he's chased through the streets of London. As he runs, we have a footstep artist who will physically run in time with his feet. This Foley artist will start off on flagstones and then onto the street, which is compacted earth and stones, and run in time with Joe finds. He's being chased. So we will now record the soldiers chasing him. Probably we'll do two or three of those together. So uh, we have two, two Foley artists running. Their clothes, aren't they wearing chains which would rattle or make a noise? Well, maybe a sword or a harness or something. So we'll jingle a bit of that. So now we have their running feet and we have some sound of their clothes. He runs through some chickens at one point. Um, so we have the chicken sound and they all scatter everywhere. So we'll pan that sound of the chickens off to the right, off to the left. And you can slowly start to see how the whole soundscape starts to build up. realise the sound of London of that period. No cars, no traffic, no planes. So we, we not invented a soundtrack, but we had to imagine what it would be like then. Romeo and Ethel. <laughs> Who wrote that? Nobody. You were writing it for me. I gave you three pounds a month. Since. We would look at um, the period it is set in. And the images we see on the screen are London with muddy streets, small amounts of paved areas. It's the Henslow. Will you lend me £50? Pounds? This is not through research. This is really, to be quite frank, looking at what we see on the screen. I feel very much in control of what I see. The production designer, the man who built the sets, the man who built what we see on the screen, would have researched it to make sure it looked correct. But his is a visual thing, you see. You, know, you, can, you can see it from paintings, from archive footage, from written notes, and also images, drawn images. You can see... see. He could see what London looked like. Sound is... It's impossible. Will you lend me fifty pounds? There's no recordings of that period. We can only assume. You know, I've read lots of novels, but not for this film. I mean, I, I read. I quite like historical novels, and you get an impression. 
I mean, no one knows really what London really sounded like at that time. I mean, there's horses, of course, animals. So uh, I don't know if it is documented what it sounded like then. I probably quite noisy in a different way. You can't. Uh, there's no recording of that period. So that's just a fact. So we'd have to use. You'd have to imagine it and use common sense, really. You'd have to imagine it. Imagine it. I suppose you'd hear a lot of noise because people live together more, more of a community. Mm. That's how I imagine it, and therefore you would have noise of people cooking and talking. Might have heard sheep, pigs, I would have thought more in those days than sheep. Mm, probably a dog. <laughs> Not the traffic. I don't, definitely wouldn't have heard traffic, you know. <laughs> That's about it, I think. Thirty decibels. Eighty decibels. Ninety, one hundred, one hundred and twenty decibels. One hundred and ten, one hundred, ninety, one hundred. One hundred and ten. Ninety. Eighty. Decibels. The loudest sounds that a person in Shakespeare's time uh, could have heard turned out to be the sounds of cannon being fired off on certain occasions in the Tower of London. But aside from that, which was a very special effect and very short-lived, the loudest sound would be iron-rimmed wheels on a cobble street, which is very defined because it passes. That's the nature of it. Of course, in one of the small streets where a market was gathered, there'd be quite a hubbub. People selling in the streets, they each would have distinctive cries for selling their particular wares. But that is all on a very human level and so utterly different from the soundscape that we're used to. Shakespeare and his contemporaries were operating in a much quieter world than the world we inhabit. You're a damn good whistler. Thank you very much. It's funny you should speak to me now. This is my second, the week of my second anniversary on the underground, but I've been busking for 14 years around the country. And where are we? What's this tube stop? This is St Paul's. Lovely. Thank you very much. OK, my friend, no problem. The loudest sounds that they could hear were only one-third as loud as the sounds that surround many of us who live in cities all the time. We are absolutely surrounded by the noise made by the machines that we ourselves have made. And that has the effect of muffling the sound. 
In visual terms, it would be as if we were always looking at the world through a fog. Without this kind of fog of sound, if I can put it that way, individual sounds become much, much more distinct. And once they strike your ear with that distinctiveness, you are able to focus on them with a, a, a kind of intensity that is difficult in the kind of oral fog that I've been, uh, that I've been talking about. Distinct, distinctiveness. Distinctiveness. I'm Barry Truax, the author of Acoustic Communication. There's the whole story about every sound. So in your neighborhood, for instance, just think, how many sounds would you identify absolutely with complete context? <laughs> Who it is, what their relationship is to you, what they were doing, is this uh, their normal pattern, is this their abnormal pattern, what does that mean, is this a special event, you know, could you distinguish all of these things just by ear? Good morning, my treasures. Good morning, come on, have to come, go on, chook, 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 chooks, come on, oh, not you, mate. Today, we, we tend to have these broadband sounds that are just simply there, they're meaningless, they're dull, they're uninteresting. Acoustically, if you just listen to our soundscape, it's actually simpler in the sense, if I can use the ecological terms, fewer dominant species dominate everything and there are fewer small-scale variety sounds. We just take for granted reproduced sound coming out of speakers. But everything, of course, prior to the technology was established by its source and its context. So, of course, you would listen differently. Of course, that's not to say that we, we, we're not aestheticizing and saying, oh, well, they were listening to how delightful it was to hear the blacksmith doing. You know, it was information. It was information, and it was something you needed. If you needed a, a, uh, a delivery, well, then you would listen for the cart that would be coming with its horses, you know, and you'd know the kind of sound that, that you'd be listening for. the large energy sounds that are larger than human scale start dominating and then we stop listening because they're no longer on the human scale. This is our complex modern world for you. It's not complex at all. It's disgustingly simple and uninformative and bland and uninteresting, right? There's no information here other than that the information is that there's no information. That's the message, is there's, we're nowhere compared to what it would have been like if we were in England in the 16th century, right? You couldn't have experienced what, how this boring environment that we are in. We're nowhere. 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 Most of us have, in fact, because of the pressures of modern life, learned not to listen, and we have to relearn it.
Hello, Jay speaking. Oh, hello. I'm, I'm not sure where I'm calling. Uh, sorry, who are you calling? Where are you calling from? We're collecting sounds from all around London, and I'm wondering if we could just hold the telephone up so I could record 30 seconds of the sound. Is that a, you're only in a small office here, mate. That's say. fine. All right, no that's problem. fine. Where, where exactly right. is it? It's at Waterloo right. in London. Hold Would you on. just hold the phone up for 30 seconds? Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Hold on. All right, mate. Lovely. Thank you very okay. much. No problem. All right. Goodbye. Cheers, mate. Listening for Shakespeare and his contemporaries was a much more visceral, a much more direct physical contact uh, with the world. And it's not just because uh, there were no automobiles and there were fewer machines uh, to alienate individuals from the natural world. That's, that's, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an attention to the process of listening in which you realize intensely your physical relationship to the world in which you exist. In our own time and place, we tend to think of our bodies as being chemical electrical machines, that sound strikes our eardrums, and that it sets up an electrical current in our nerves, which carries that sound to our brains, where we interpret the sound, uh, and often fix it by giving it uh, a verbal name. Hello, Jay speaking. Things were much more fluid in Shakespeare's time. The story that they told themselves was a very old story that went all the way back to Aristotle and to Galen in ancient Greek. The idea was that any sensation was transmitted through your body through an airy liquid called spiritus. And that when you heard a sound, it went to a faculty in your brain called common sense. Not common sense in terms of practicality, but common sense in terms of all the senses being common. So that the sound that you heard would be fused with what you were seeing, what you were smelling, what you were touching. It would also be fused with memories. And in that form, it would be delivered to the heart where you would have a visceral reaction to what you were hearing and your heart would either dilate uh, in uh, enjoyment of what you were hearing and in a desire to know more about it, to embrace it, or it would contract in, uh, in, 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 in fear or anxiety.
the result of these contractions or dilations of the heart would be felt all over the body as this intercommunicating system of spiritus uh, went from the toes to the head to the fingertips all through the body and that any hearing experience would be a whole body experience. It's a different story from the one that we tell ourselves. Even though the story we tell ourselves may to our lights be more true to the way flesh, nerves, and electricity operate, it may not be delivering us up to the world with quite the openness to experience that that older story, that story that Shakespeare and his contemporaries knew, uh, can manage for us. Bernard. Are you recording that? I'm Di Hadley, Diana Hadley. I've lived at Middle Watchbury Farm all my life and the village, Barford, Warwick, you know, obviously an agricultural community since certainly in Elizabethan times and before. He's a bit slow. He can't, he can't see very well because his ears are over his eyes and he can't hear very well because his ears are over his ear holes. He's a Gloucester Old Spot. I mean, they're a well-known old breed. Right, Mrs P, do you want your tea? Tea time. Thank <laughs> you. 
I can hear sheep in the background barring, lambs looking for their mothers because they've wandered off. I can hear pigs snuffling around eating. I can hear hens probably stealing the pig's food, nicking the pig's food. Um, in the background, that's the uh, last of the rush hour traffic on the M40. <laughs> I can hear a background, I can hear an aeroplane there. That's it. <laughs> and what do you imagine you would have heard four centuries ago, right here? Right here. Bird song. Recording. We used to call it the Dawn Chorus. Thousands of birds, hundreds of birds. You'd hear them. You don't know. I think it's through this type of uh, farming today that's got rid of them. I'm John Drew. I'm a Kenilworth, Warwickshire man. I have written 15 books on Kenilworth and Warwickshire. Um, in those days, you see, the farming was of a different nature to what you get today. And I think that's why you had so many. I mean, for example, thousands of uh, um, starlings and different blackbirds like that, absolute thick clouds of them going from north to south, of course, there's a wood on the castle estate, but they've all gone. There was a period before clocks and bells regulated the life of, of, of Europe, when it would have been, you know, the seasonal sounds, the daily sounds, you know, when the birds came and it would change. The idea that nine o'clock was the same everywhere at every time of the year is, of course, ridiculous. Right, nine o'clock in the morning might be pre-dawn. The dawn chorus might be already over. It might not have even have happened yet. You know, so the sense of time. I mean, sound obviously exists in time, but it's that's our conception that sound is in time. But what it does is it actually creates time through rhythm, through cycles, through patterns. It creates your your sense of flow.
Uh, my name's Anthony Rooley. I've specialised in uh, music of earlier times. Come and buy my fish. Best fish. Best fish. People selling in the streets, in a busy street market, they each would have distinctive cries for selling their particular wares. And so you'd have people selling fresh flowers and they would be calling out the flowers' names that were in season. So you'd actually have a sense of time as well. You, you know, the passing of the year would be em em embedded uh, in the sounds of the cries. This is embodied, actually, in song. There are a few composers of the time who enjoyed to bring in normal strands of life, not art music as such, but embodying the love of folklore and traditions and well-known sayings and epithets and so on, all into a musical effect, so you have a kind of musical soundscape. And the most famous of these is Thomas Ravenscroft. He's really quite a master. The Crier's Song of Cheapside, it takes us right into the centre of London, East End of London, 1600. There's no recording, recording. of that period. It's, you'd have to imagine it. Imagine it. Why were the ears so important? Why was sound so important? As indeed it certainly was. Because it was a means of addressing the soul. It was the way of the external world entering the internal world of the individual. The famous fugings of London street cries by Orlando Gibbons and others, we know that they did have something to do with the actual street cries because cherry sellers are presented in Gibbons with the same cadences as the cherry sellers in Daring, for example. Cherry ripe, 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 cherry ripe, 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 appears to be the way that cry uh, sounded actually in the streets. But these fugings of London street cries, after all, were put together as music. So I suppose we might think of them as being like postcards that we buy when we travel. Other things have been washed out. The smells, any of those things that might have been part of our actual experience in visiting the site uh, have been prettied up. They've been removed. And I suppose we need to think about Gibbons and those other street cries in that way. Kitchen stop, have you made? 
There's um, a satire by William Baldwin called Beware the Cat that was printed in 1584, and I have to chuckle because he really has done this amazing job of uh, cataloging all of the sounds. Now, this is totally made up, I guess, because it's supposed to be uh, the sounds that this man, Jeffrey Streamer, heard when his ears were miraculously opened, and he could hear not just the sounds that were right around him in the room where he was in the city of London, but everything up to 100 miles away. Barking of dogs, grunting of hogs, walling of cats, rumbling of rats, gaggling of geese, humming of bees, nousing of bucks, gaggling of ducks. Listen to the lyrics set by all of these wonderful composers of this extraordinary period. Cackling of hens, scrap. And you're aware of the nature of the sound of the English language. Toads in the bogs. So wonderfully varied. Chirping of crickets, shutting of wickets. So much variety. Shrieking of owls, flittering of fowls. But how many words are actually born in onomatopoeic colouring and desire? Routing of knaves, snorting of slaves, farting of churls, fizzling of girls, ringing of bells, counting of coins, mounting of groins, whispering of lovers, springing of plovers, groaning and spewing baking and brewing, scratching and rubbing, watching and shrubbing, with such sort of commixed noises as would deaf anybody to have heard. Hello? Hello? Hello, we're recording the sounds of London through the telephone. Would you mind holding that phone up in the air just for 20 seconds? I can record the sound on the street there. Sure. All right, where is it exactly? Earl's Court, mate. All right, would you mind? Yeah, of course. What, you done? Yes, lovely, thank you. I think one of the most important things about Elizabethan England is the sound of the English language at the time. Today, it's not uncommon to have people talking at an intonation and staying at the same level the whole of the time, and they just Hello? and they might change the speed, sure. but not often that either. It can sometimes get really weary Hello? because they're just digging in and staying on a monotone. Hello, uh, Leicester Square. Sure. You're only in a small office. Oh, thank you. Oh, this would have been impossible in Elizabethan England. In Elizabethan England, a wide variety of speaking pictures was expected. Come, gentle knight. Come, loving, black-browed knight. Give me my Romeo. And when I shall die... A good speaking voice would use uh, about six tones in its speech. Give me my Romeo. And when I shall die... That's from quite high to quite low. And this was expected in speech. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it, and though I am sold... So, if you were a good orator, you would use this full range of sounds from top to bottom. So tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival, to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. Shakespeare was writing for a theatre in which voices and hearing were at least as important and maybe more important than seeing and looking. 
in Shakespeare's time, only about 25% of the population could read, which meant that information was conveyed person to person, and being conveyed person to person, it was conveyed from mouth to ear. Give me my Romeo, and when I shall die... From mouth to ear. The very word hark, I think, is a, a, an interesting example because the ah sound is regarded as the fundamental sound of creativity. The h gives it a beginning, the aspiration. But the rk, the ah would have been more rolled in Elizabethan England than we do today. We see it today, hark. They would have said hark. So hark is truly onomatopoeic. It commands attention and it brings us to an exclamation mark, which is into silence. Hark, listen to this, because it's worth listening to. You know, I've said that the sounds of the past could be recovered if we had the right kind of technical equipment, but many of the sounds are recoverable, including the sounds of church bells. Uh, if the same bells are hanging in the belfry, you would be hearing the same sounds that uh, one could have heard in Shakespeare's time. We're at St Peter's Church, Barford. I'm Michael Ashton, the town captain. So in that corner there, that's the oldest bell. That came for, from a redundant church at atherston on Stour. And I think that's 13th century. Yes. It's, uh, this is the tenth, the heaviest bell in the tower. Should we do some uh, rounds of call changes? <clears throat> right, okay then. Look two. Trouble's going, she's gone. Look two. Trouble's going. and lemons say the bells of St Clements you owe me five farthings say the bells of St Martins when will you pay me say the bells of Old Bailey when I am rich say the bells of Shoreditch when will that be say the bells of Stepney I do not know say the Great Bell of Bow uh, and all those churches are churches of London I'm Simon Meyer I'm the steeple keeper of St Mary Le Bow and we're currently standing in the ringing chamber of St Mary Le Bow Church and actually if you look at the picture on the wall over there that is uh, line drawings of all the churches in the nursery rhyme. The sort of ringing that we do is, is what they always sort of say, English style ringing. And it's quite different to what you might see on the continent, France, Germany, places like that. There, the bells just sort of hang mouth downwards and just swing backwards and forwards a little bit. When we ring the bells, we actually ring them mouth upwards, all the way around 360 degrees to mouth upwards and back again. And by doing that, when they're mouth upwards, 
There's a little bit of balance there, there's a little bit of control. So whereas the sort of the continental way, they just sort of jangle together, we can actually get some regular patterns of, of ringing. I mean, change ringing started around, you know, late 1500s, early 1600s was the time, and as I say, Bow had a peal of bells then. There weren't, there weren't that many places that had bells at that stage or had competent teams of ringers. London had a number of places, and initially the numbers of bells that were, were rung were small numbers, and if you look back to that sort of era, there were maybe five bells in the tower here. So bells have been here in St Mary the Bow for a very long time, and there are various sort of records of things that happened at, at that sort of time. Let me, let me just look in the book here. I think that was, yeah, here we go. It's um, Philip Gershow, who visited London in 1602. Uh, his first impression was how noisy the city was. So here is what Gershow has to say on September the 12th, 1602. Recording. On arriving in London, we heard a great ringing of bells in almost all the churches going on very late in the evening. Also on the following days, until 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening. We were informed that the young people do that for the sake of exercise and amusement, and that sometimes they lay considerable sums of money as a wager who will pull a bell the longest or ring it in the most approved fashion. The old queen is said to have been pleased very much by this exercise, considering it as a sign of the health of the people. That probably would have been the beginning of change ringing and in those early days there were a lot of competitions between different teams of ringers. Uh, competitions for prizes, for money, for beer. Uh, ringers are, are very well connected with beer. Um, but it's thirsty work. If you ring for a long time you, you need something to quench the thirst afterwards. Of course we have very good beer here so uh, it's uh, any excuse. to be born within the sound of bow bells. Um, the sound would have travelled three quarters of a mile or a mile or so, so London was very much defined as sort of you know, a mile around bow. Um, and that was a true Londoner, that was a Cockney. That's possibly unique, because I can't think of anywhere else that the boundary of the community was defined by how far the sound of bells travelled. And they were relatively large bells even then, a lot smaller than we've got now, but still relatively large. And I suppose that's why they became the, you know, the great bow bells, the great bell of bow, because they were big for any church. But it was a church right in the centre of London. And of course they were rung for the curfew as well, so to tell people it's the end of the day uh, and sometimes in the morning and things like that. So they were actually used as a signal then to tell people, you know, get up, go to work, work's finished, go home. And 
they were uh, said to have called um, Dick Whittington back to London. He was leaving London very disheartened and he's said to have heard Bow Bells about a mile away and he felt they were calling him back, which would have been quite feasible in those days because um, cities weren't as noisy as they are for a start, so it would have been quite feasible he did hear the bells from here. But the biggest problem you have now is it's surrounded by relatively tall buildings um, and I suspect they would absorb the sound. But you don't really hear these bells. You, know, you go down the street now, you don't hear them that much because the streets just block it all out. Sorry, I'm Miles White. I can hear an extractor fan. <laughs> I can hear that instrument playing, it's very nice. I'm uh, Thomas Brangman and I'm a, uh, a busker playing the hammer dulcimer. And um, we are on the south bank of the Thames. Um, we're under Southwark Bridge. I always go for either um, Blackfriars Bridge or this bridge just because um, the acoustics really... Um, yeah, it works. Yeah, you get the atmosphere. And there would have been... Uh, players of this very instrument uh, in the Globe Theatre as well, which is uh, just up there. Greek music we hear. Sirens. Silence. What did we read? What was that verse? Oh, gosh. A proverb um, we read, the Jewish proverb. Um, costs one... If silence cost a penny... No, no, if... If words cost a penny, silence would cost two. two. Yeah. We tend to talk about sound and forget silence. I think the Elizabethan world was infinitely more aware, conscious of the value and importance of silence. In fact, philosophically, uh, they regarded that sound, music particularly, could be seen to be simply a decoration of silence. Because where does it start from? It starts from silence, it emerges, it comes to its full height, tension, there's a resolution of the tension, and it returns to silence. Silence is something that a lot of us in our own time find it difficult to tolerate. Recording. Can we tolerate silence? It seems to me that we live in a time where silence has become frightening. Hello? 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 Have I got somewhere in London? Hello? Silence is like the frame around an oral picture. You've got to have the silence before you can really hear.
The concept of the music of the spheres was actually a standard part of everybody's awareness, even the uneducated in Elizabeth's time. Looking at the heavens, you see the planets are moving. Anything that moves has to make a sound. When John Dowland chooses to make a silence in all four parts, in that chink of silence, we hear the music of the spheres. It was understood that these great planets moving in the heavens, each one made its own particular and individual sound. But the sound was so great and so permanent that we couldn't hear it. The physical music, when it becomes silent, allows the human mind to hear an echo of that greater sound. And that's the only time we can experience the music of the spheres because its sound is there with us permanently. It's a hum, the hum of the universe, and it goes on forever and a day. Hello? Hello? Have I got somewhere in London? Hello? Yes. Sir? Yes. Every sound that has ever been made within the Earth's atmosphere still exists somewhere, however faint those frequencies are. And if we just had the right kind of technical equipment, we could hear the voice of perhaps Shakespeare himself playing the ghost in Hamlet. Uh, and I asked myself then, are the sounds of the past gone forever? Hello? Hello? From 2008, that's Hark, the acoustic world of Elizabethan England. Three of the most imaginative audio producers I know assembled that story. Chris Brooks, Paolo Pietropalo, and Alan Hall. It's a real treat for the ears. And so what about your New Year's resolutions? Are you going to add deliberate listening to your list after hearing that piece? I hope so. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Hark and our modern acoustic environment. You can post them to the blog, howsound.org. This is the 65th edition of How Sound. 65. Wow, that's a lot of programs on radio storytelling. You can find every episode at howsound.org. I hope you'll take time to comb through the archives. Also, when you get a chance, please like us on Facebook or follow us at How Sound Tweets. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. It's produced by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. And transom.org.